Good afternoon and welcome to our Classical Immigration Law Partners Washington update. We want to uh, update employers on the new immigration restrictions that have come out from this administration, both the immediately effective proclamation from Monday, as well as predicting some of the other things that are happening in Washington right now that will be affecting employment-based immigration. I'd like to introduce my, uh, this is William Stock. I'm one of the partners here at Classical Immigration Law Partners. Uh, my partners, Elise Fialkowski, Michelle Madera and Ron Clasco will be uh, presenting today. So before we get started, I do want to let everybody know that we, uh, due to the size of the attendance, will not be able to take audio questions. Rather, what we'd ask you to do is to use the question box that should be on the right-hand side of your screen. You can type a question into that box at any time during the presentation, and we will address all of the questions that we can during the presentation and uh, in about the last uh, 10 or 15 minutes. If we don't get to your question, please don't despair. We will be saving those questions, and we'll be reaching out individually to folks who answered a question that we were not able to answer on this call. So with that, I, we want to learn about what the executive order states. Uh, we're going to go through understanding who is and who isn't banned, how to get exceptions to the ban, the legal challenges to the ban, uh, what there might be for alternatives for those banned employees, and then give you a preview of some of the regulatory and enforcement changes, as well as some of the other immigration changes that are coming. So that's the roadmap for today. And to get us started, I'm gonna hand it over to Michelle Madera to talk about what is in the executive order. Thanks, Bill, um, and welcome everybody. So the executive order, which was um, announced on Monday and takes effect um, over, it took effect overnight at midnight last night, extends the current immigrant visa ban, which was announced back in April. So um, for those of you who may not recall, an immigrant visa is issued to people who are abroad coming into the U.S. to effect effectuate their permanent resident status. So that's when they use, get an immigrant visa and use that to enter the United States. This ban is um, extending that order that, that limited the immigrant visas, um, and it will continue until December 31st now. Now, I know a lot of people on this um, webinar are um, employers. So just so everybody's aware, employer-based um, immigrant visas are only 15% of immigrant visas, so this mostly impacts um, family-based immigrant visas, okay? Um, now there is a, there are exceptions to the immigrant visa ban and those still stand and they're more um, lenient than the, the um, exceptions that go into place for the temporary non-immigrant visa ban and we'll talk about that as well in a little bit. But the exceptions for the immigrant visa ban are immediate relatives, a spouse and children of U.S. citizens, all healthcare workers, COVID researchers, Iraqi and Afghani translators, EB-5 investors, and then there are other exceptions if we can show that the immigration is in the national interest. The executive order announced on Monday continues to say that there is a new ban, which is banning H-1Bs, is banning the entry of not the following non-immigrant categories. H-1B, L-1, which is intra-company transfers, H-2Bs, and J-1s in the following J-1 categories, which are trainee, intern, summer work travel programs, teachers, summer camp counselors, and au pairs, along with their dependent family members for all of those categories. 
this ban only impacts people who are outside the United States on its um, on June 22nd. And if they do not have a valid visa in their passport already or a valid travel document on that date. Okay, so if somebody is currently in the United States, this ban would not apply to them, which we're going to talk about in more detail in a little bit. The ban also, um, uh, the executive order, I'm sorry, also directs agencies to undertake certain rulemaking and investigative actions, which we're going to discuss in detail as we go through this. Um, so now I'm going to turn it over to Elise to talk about um, who's not impacted by this. Well, the good news is there are several um, folks who are absolutely not impacted by this latest proclamation. Um, as Michelle alluded to, anyone currently in the United States at the time of the proclamation um, in any status is not impacted. So what does that really mean? Even though, as Michelle said, the H-1Bs, the Ls, and the Js, and the H-2Bs are listed as impacted, if any of those folks are in the United States, they are not impacted by the proclamation. So they can continue to work in the United States. They can continue to extend their status in the U.S., and they can also continue to move forward with green cards. Um, in fact, this may be a very good opportunity for many of the folks in H and L status that, and others that are listed on the proclamation um, to move forward with green cards. As we'll talk about in a little bit, the proclamation also calls for more regulations um, to protect U.S. workers. So this may be a very good time to move forward with green card applications. Um, even though um, the proclamation does not impact those currently in the U.S. Uh, in any status whatsoever, we really are not recommending travel at this time. Um, we really want folks, until we see how the order is implemented, um, to stay put for now uh, until we uh, have further guidance. So who else is not impacted? Um, even some folks who are outside the United States are not impacted by the executive order. It's those who have a current unexpired visa. So anyone who's in one of those classifications like your H's and L's, as long as they have an unexpired visa, they are not impacted by the proclamation. Um, we also think, based upon the plain language of the executive order that says it does not apply to those who have a non-immigrant visa that is valid on the effective date of the proclamation, it may even be possible for individuals who have a visa that's valid on the date of the proclamation, but thereafter expires to extend or get a new visa outside the United States. Um, that is something that we expect there to be further guidance on that we will look at. Um, there may also be the opportunity for those who currently have 
Um, some other valid visa, for example, they have a valid uh, B non-immigrant visa or an F student visa. There may be the possibility, again, based upon that plain language of the proclamation, um, there may be a possibility that they could get H or L classification um, visa outside the United States. Um, so who else is not impacted? Um, J1 non-immigrants and their family members in J2 in certain categories. So J1s who are professors, researchers, students, um, both high school and college, as well as short-term scholars and medical residents and fellows are not impacted by the proclamation. Um, there is also an exception um, for those who provide temporary labor or services essential to the U.S. supply chain. So they are also exempt. Um, who else? Um, current green card holders, as well as spouses and minor children of U.S. citizens, and of course, all other non-immigrant categories like the E's, the TN's, the O, Extraordinary Ability Aliens. Um, there are, however, still some open issues and questions with regard to who is not really impacted. Um, Ron, do you want to cover some of those open issues and topics for us and some potential arguments we may have in other areas? Sure, Elise, thanks. So, uh... Michelle and Elise did a great job of talking about you know, what, what the proclamation says and what we know to be correct from reading the proclamation. Uh, but there are a variety of issues that we have opinions of how we think it should be interpreted, but it's not clear yet how the government will interpret it. So understand that uh, folks at US, uh, at US consuls around the world, the CBP folks, um, they will not at this point, one day into this, don't know any more than we do as to how this is all going to be interpreted. But here are some of the key issues we're, we're looking at. Uh, number one, are Canadians covered by the non-immigrant visa ban? Uh, our opinion on that is that they are not covered by the ban under the language of the proclamation that says that the ban only applies to people seeking entry pursuant to a visa. And since Canadians are visa exempt and are not seeking entry pursuant to a visa, by the language of the proclamation, we think it does not apply to Canadians. We have some prelim very preliminary indication that the government may agree with us on this, but we sure don't know, uh, and uh, we hope in the coming days we'll find out how the government is interpreting that. Does this uh, non-immigrant ban apply to H-1B1s from Chile and Singapore? Um, we believe that by the very language, uh, it does not, because it talks about H-1Bs and H-2Bs, and it does not talk about H-1B1s. However, we don't know if the government agrees. We do know that the U.S. consuls at this point in Singapore and Chile uh, have received no instructions. So as of this point, uh, they will not be issuing H-1B1 visas 
until they get instructions one way or the other. One of the interesting issues uh, that has been mentioned already is the fact that the the ban, the non-immigrant ban, does not apply to people who are uh, who already have a valid travel document for entry uh, for use for entry into the U.S. Now, in the most expansive reading of that. It means that the non-immigrant visa ban would not apply to anybody who has a passport because a passport is a type of travel document. Um, we're not at all confident that the government's interpretation will be the same. Um, you know, and for example, if you're a, uh, uh, a UK national who does not need a visa to come to the US, uh, your travel document is your passport. Does that mean that this does the ban does not apply to you? Um, I am thinking that the intention was to talk about USCIS issued travel documents that this does not apply to, such as advanced paroles and reentry permits, but we don't know that for sure. And the last thing I'll mention uh, is is the question of how this ban will impact actions by USCIS and consular officers overseas. So will USCIS adjudicate petitions, let's say, for example, L petitions, knowing that the recipient, the beneficiary of the L petition will be banned from getting a non-immigrant visa uh, until at least uh, uh, 2021? We don't know that. Will U.S. consuls issue visas, for example, an H-1B or an L-1 visa, knowing that the applicant is subject to the ban, uh, but there is, the ban does not ban issuance of visas. It only bans entry pursuant to the visas. So those are things that we don't know. Uh, Bill, uh, maybe you want to pick up with uh, <coughs> uh, the some of the exceptions we've talked about to uh, uh, for non-immigrants uh, who are coming to the U.S. for something in the national interest. Thank you, Ron. And <clears throat> this proclamation does contain narrow exceptions to the ban of getting new visas, uh, similar to exceptions that we have seen in uh, past bans. So we are anticipating that procedurally, individuals will be able to request visa appointments by making an assertion that they are eligible for one of these national interest uh, exceptions to the ban, that uh, they uh, first will have to get scheduled. So first the consulate will have to agree that it's a case that they're willing to put forward the argument on. If the consulate finds that the person is eligible for the visa, they will then ask for a ban uh, waiver essentially, uh, and that will go to Customs and Border Protection. So our experience with individuals, for example, uh, in Europe right now, who uh, have been able to make claims that they were essential to COVID research efforts or who have been able to make uh, other kinds of national interest arguments, uh, those individuals have usually taken uh, several weeks to get a visa appointment and then several weeks after the visa appointment before they get a final decision on whether or not they're given a waiver of the travel ban. So. 
that gives us some optimism that individuals uh, you know, will be able to uh, ask for these national interest exceptions. Now, the really interesting thing about this proclamation is that the exceptions are drafted more narrowly. For example, the immigrant visa ban, as Michelle mentioned in the first section, does have an exemption for anyone who is a nurse or a physician or another kind of healthcare worker. The national interest waiver under this proclamation for H-1B and L-1 and J-1s says that you have to be involved directly in the treatment of COVID patients, not generally a healthcare worker, uh, or you have to be doing research directly on COVID, not generally doing healthcare research. The broadest, however, uh, suggestion that they have is waivers that are, quote, necessary to facilitate the immediate and continued economic recovery of the United States. That is a potential waiver that could cover a lot of L1 visas at a senior management level, uh, L1s for key uh, uh, individuals in the food chain, uh, for example, uh, L1s whose uh, applications uh, or whose positions in the United States can be shown uh, to be necessary to create jobs in the United States. So those are going to be the uh, kind of exceptions we're going to be looking to uh, interpret as expansively as possible to work with clients to figure out what arguments they can make uh, in order to try and get those waivers. Um, now, of course, it would be better if we did not have to ask for waivers because this proclamation uh, was stopped from going into effect by a court. Ron, can you talk us through uh, challenges to this proclamation? Can the president do this and will a court stop him? Sure, thanks, Bill. Uh, uh, Bill, as you know, one of the hats I wear is uh, chairman of the litigation task force of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. And uh, we have been and will be uh, very actively involved in litigation to challenge this ban, which we think at a number of levels uh, goes beyond the authority of the president to enact. And we think we have some reasonable chance of being successful. Um, so I just want to, on a very general overview, talk about this. And obviously anybody uh, who wants to go into detail, I'd be happy to go into detail. So there's at least two levels at which we will be challenging the ban in federal court. One is the, the ban have, can only be upheld uh, based on the reasons that the president gives for the ban. And the reasons the president gives for the ban are solely related to the high unemployment in the U.S. and the fact that somehow this ban is going to create jobs for U.S. workers. Um, we believe that there are serious issues with the logic of that. Um, you know, it, it, it includes L1A managers and executives. Uh, it seems to be an extreme stretch to say that somebody who's been managing a company overseas for at least one year and is being transferred to the U.S. is, is somehow taking away a job from a U.S. worker. Um, even L1Bs, where you have to show that the person has knowledge that's proprietary to the overseas company. Um, uh, is very hard to show how they take away jobs from U.S. workers. H-2Bs go through a full labor market test before you can get the visas. So there already is in place a system to make sure that they're not taking jobs from American workers. Even with the H-1Bs, uh, we know that a very high percentage 
of the H-1B visas that are issued are issued in the computer and IT industry. Um, the unemployment rate, uh, as of now, in the computer and IT industry is 2.5%. So if there's ever an area where there's not a problem with unemployment, it's that, but yet they're saying we're gonna take away H-1Bs in order to address that issue. Uh, there's all sorts of documentation that we have on how immigrants actually help the US labor market. Um, and so that will be one level of challenge to the ban. On a purely legal level, the, there's a section of the law called Section 212F, which President Trump used to justify the Muslim ban. Uh, we believe that Section 212F does not give the authority because the, the 212F and the Muslim ban case that went to the Supreme Court were dealing with issues of national security and foreign affairs, where Congress does not have a role and the president has his highest level of ability to take unilateral action. When we're dealing with immigration issues where there's a full complex scheme set up by Congress to deal with issues including the effect of immigrants on unemployment, uh, we believe that Section 212F does not give the president somehow blanket authority to just uh, do whatever he wants in, in, uh, and, and disregard uh, Congress uh, in, in, uh, in deciding who can come to the U.S. Uh, so we do believe we have strong challenges we can make. Um, now, as a practical matter, we of course can only make those challenges if we have companies or trade organizations who are willing to be plaintiffs uh, in this litigation. And we do know that we at least believe at this point that there are some companies and some national business groups that are actively contemplating being plaintiffs. Uh, I would strongly urge anybody listening in on the call uh, who thinks that it's uh, conceivable uh, that uh, your, your company or organization is interested in learning more about the possibility of being a plaintiff uh, uh, to please let me know and we can talk in more detail, but we definitely need, need plaintiffs. Uh, one of the interesting things we found in other litigation we've done, uh, we have uh, uh, H-1B specialty occupation class action litigation. Uh, the end result of filing that litigation is all of the named plaintiffs cases were immediately approved in order to try to moot out the litigation. We have litigation challenging the immigrant visa ban from April. Uh, all of the individual plaintiffs who were plaintiffs in that case had their case immediately approved in order for the government to try to moot out the litigation. So in addition to doing good for the for all of us by being a plaintiff, you can also do good for yourselves. Um, we do expect that we will be filing litigation um, very quickly, uh, you know, certainly in the in the next month and hopefully before that. Uh, we will be deciding uh, whether we will be seeking a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction. For companies planning, I would say that it is likely that any federal court relief that might uh, uh, prevent this from going forward is not likely to happen, certainly in the next month, month and a half. Uh, and so we need to plan accordingly on the assumption that uh, at least for some period of time, we are going to have this ban in place, uh, but uh, hopefully we will 
uh, have good success in challenging it. So I think uh, that brings us up to uh, talking about some uh, some strategies for uh, dealing with this ban, assuming it's going to be in place for a while. Elise, do you want to work us through that? Sure. The, the, there are several strategies based upon the structure of this executive order. One of the questions we're getting from folks um, who did already file their H-1B cap case counselor notification, um, even though most were filed as change of status, is what to do now. Um, so there is a strategy that um, will work in the situation. Um, so even if the H-1B cap case has already been filed with consular notification, if an approval is received from the consular notification filing, um, we can thereafter file an amendment requesting a change of status from the person's current status in the United States to an H-1B. So um, there is good news on that front. Um, the other thing that we will be looking at for those who um, are not yet in the United States who otherwise would have done perhaps an L1 or an H1B, we're really going to be looking at the O1 Extraordinary Ab Ability Alien Visa um, as a, a good option for a number of those folks. So. The O-1 Extraordinary Ability Alien is reserved for those who are at the top of the field of endeavor, and you need to provide at least three out of ten types of key evidence showing that that person is really leading in the field. I think a lot of folks think that the O-1 is often restricted to researchers with peer-reviewed journal articles, with citations, with uh, speaking engagements and the like, but we have been very successful um, obtaining O1s for people in many, many different fields and many areas. Um, we have done a lot of O1s for startups, for in the tech area, as well as for executives and many different areas. So the O1 is going to be something that we're going to look at closely. The E-Visa, the, the Treaty um, Investor Visa, the E-2, as well as the E-1 Treaty Trader Visa is something that we're going to be looking at as well in the appropriate circumstances. Basically, E-Visas are available if there is a treaty between the United States and the relevant country. There are many treaty countries that are eligible for these E-visas. So, for example, Albania, Argentina, Austria, many of the European countries, um, Bangladesh, Cameroon, um, many different countries are eligible for E-visas. There are some notable exceptions. Um, China and India are not eligible for the E's. But we will be looking at the ease if we think we can meet the requirements. Generally, the company ultimately needs to have the treaty nationality. So if the company is purely a U.S. company, this would not work. 
but it may be a good option for some L1s and H1Bs if ultimately we can show that the company is owned and controlled by nationals from a treaty country, right? All of those treaty uh, countries that I mentioned before, um, a lot of the European and the like, and not only do we need that nationality of the company, but the employee coming to the United States um, also has to have that same nationality. So classic example is a, a company that has headquarters in the UK, owned and controlled um, by the UK company. Um, those who are coming to work into that company who are UK citizens, who may be either executives, managers, or essential workers, may qualify for e-visas if there's been a substantial investment in the United States <clears throat> or if there is significant trade between the United States and the UK. So the e-visas are uh, an option for those folks. Another thing that we're going to be looking at as a strategy is to push that national interest waiver um, beyond immediate COVID needs, right? Beyond the, the doctors treating patients, beyond the researchers for the vaccines and researchers dealing with treatment for COVID-19. But to show really that this U.S. worker is going to be key as they will be hiring U.S. workers. So remember, the executive order had language in there um, basically saying that um, those folks can come in if they are necessary to facilitate the immediate and continued economic recovery. I believe that there's a very good argument if we talk about job creation for U.S. workers, particularly because the whole underlying theory for this executive order is the unemployment rates in the United States, particularly of U.S. workers. Um, what else can we look at as a strategy? Using the J-1 more, right? So using the J-1 for medical residents instead of the H-1B, using the J-1 for researchers instead of the H-1B. Um, even if your company does not have an approval as a registered um, J-1 program, we have been working with a number of uh, registered J-1 providers, or we call them umbrella programs, that coordinate J research scholar visas with our clients. So that is something that we are gonna be looking at in the appropriate case. If the person in fact is conducting research, a key example, you know, research in the medical area, but not just that, we've been able to do a lot of J's for research scholars, even in product development, um, and even for some of our smaller and growing uh, companies. Um, Ron, there's also a really a great unique strategy, and I will always credit you as the founder of this strategy, as I remember you talking about it during some of our partner meetings. Um, what if someone wants to look at the E2, but they are not a citizen of one of the countries on the treaty schedule at this time? Yeah, so, and, and as you said, Elise, we're talking about China and India and countries like 
other countries that don't have treaties like South Africa and Brazil and Russia and uh, Saudi Arabia, etc. There are many, many countries around the world who don't have these investment treaties. So what we have done in quite a number of successful cases with for people from those in other countries uh, is get them citizenship in a country that does have a treaty. So there's something called CBI or citizenship by investment. Many high wet net worth individuals around the world have, for various reasons, citizenships in multiple countries. There are two countries especially that have the uh, ability to get citizenship by investment in, in three, four months uh, that do have treaties with the U.S. And those are the countries of Grenada and Turkey. So uh, by uh, making an investment in one of those countries, uh, you, uh, an, an individual can become a citizen of that country in, in sometimes a few months, and now all of a sudden they're eligible for an E2. Now this can help, and, and, and then that, if that individual makes an investment in the U.S., he, he applies for the E2. So this can help an individual. Also, if we have a small company, and let's say the company is owned at least 50% by a particular individual, if that individual gets citizenship in Grenada, all of a sudden that company that's owned 50% now by a Grenadian citizen is a treaty investor company. Um, so we, we have done this in a number of cases. The other thing I'll mention, uh, there was brief mention of the fact that EB-5 is specifically exempt from the ban. So the only immigrant categories exempt from the ban are immediate relatives, spouses, and children, and EB-5 investors. So for some people, EB-5 may be the best way to be able to get to the U.S. during this ban. And you know, this ban we know is in place till December 31, 2020. It may be extended beyond that. In many cases, EB-5, which requires an investment of at least $900,000, uh, and, and that's an investment, that's not a donation, so you're hoping to get that back. Um, but by making that investment, you may be able to get a green card to the U.S., and depending on the project you're investing in, uh, that could be in a matter of uh, months and not years. Uh, in, in many of these cases, it does take a lot longer than that. So anybody interested in either of those alternatives that uh, – our firm has been very actively involved in, uh, feel free to send me an email. We can uh, talk about it in, in some detail. Uh, Bill, I think that's probably where we are in terms of the present bans, um, but we do know that there's a preview of coming attractions, uh, and we know that the administration is readying uh, the issuance of a variety of regulations to enact yet further restrictions. Uh, do you want to take us through that? Absolutely. So some of the reforms that were discussed in background information uh, from this proclamation and uh, where the uh, proclamation's uh, language was kind of explained uh, through, through briefings to reporters were not a surprise. Uh, for example, uh, we're going to talk about reforms to the HOV process. There were some new uh, 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 proposals, however, which uh, people had not heard about. Um, so we'll go through those. So the first, uh, the reforms to the H-1B process were some topics that we've heard this administration talking about for uh, quite a while. 
The first is that they would attempt to prioritize workers with the highest wage at the time they're allocating the H-1Bs uh, for uh, if there are more people who seek H-1Bs uh, during the fiscal year than there are H-1Bs available. So we're familiar with the H-1B lottery for most private employers. Of course, universities, hospitals, uh, uh, other nonprofits are exempt from that cap. But if you're subject to the cap, you're familiar with the fact that it has been run as a lottery. Apparently, the administration is going to propose that it not be run as a lottery, but that uh, H-1B workers with the highest wage be given first preference for those visas if there are not enough. That would be a regulation change that they would try and make. Uh, it would be contrary to the language of the statute, and uh, we'll come back to that in a second. The second thing that uh, was announced was that they were looking to close loopholes that allow the replacement of U.S. workers with foreign labor. What they meant by that was that they are going to uh, make life difficult for uh, contracting companies, uh, whether those uh, contracting companies provide IT workers or healthcare workers or um, you know any other kind of uh, project-based work or supplementation of employers' workforce. They're likely to do this by expanding uh, the what's known as the non-displacement obligation. In other words, uh, the user of the B has to declare that they are not displacing U.S. workers by bringing in that H-1B they would try and make that apply in more situations. They would also require customers of the contractor to file their own LCA on behalf of the contractor's workers. That could have some uh, a, a number of implications with regard to the level of wages that contractors have to offer in order uh, to place people on site with an employer. Uh, obviously, it could also affect uh, the willingness of uh, employers to use contractors at all. Uh, there are also regulatory proposals to refine the employer-employee relationship. The idea being that uh, in a situation where you have a contractor, there can be questions about whether the contractor has the complete ability to control the work of the individual who's uh, uh, providing services at a third company site. And this would tighten it up and, and require more control on the behalf of a contracting company in order to be able to sponsor an H-1B worker. And then the final proposal that was discussed was to redefine how the prevailing wages are calculated. The idea being that no H-1B could be filed unless the wage offered was at least the 50th percentile, at least the, the, the middle of all wages of people in the occupation. So for uh, folks who hire individuals right out of college or in entry-level positions, it would really provide a, a serious barrier to uh, getting those H-1B workers uh, because they would have to be offered experienced uh, wages in order uh, to be sponsored for H-1Bs. The uh, other H-1B reform or, or action that was proposed was increasing the number of investigations of H-1B employers using the Secretary of Labor, the Secretary of Labor's authority to uh, direct investigations of any employer who files uh, a, a labor condition application. But we'll see whether there are, in fact, more investigations uh, following this, this order. Uh, one piece, though, of really new information was that uh, the background information on, on this process talked about increasing the scrutiny of EB-2 and EB-3 immigrant visa categories. These are categories that generally use what's called the labor certification process. And uh, this is the first we are hearing of this, so it's not entirely clear what they have in mind in terms of a reform 
to the labor certification process or to the rules around uh, the use of EB2 and EB3 visas. Um, there are a lot of things we can manage, but I, I don't want to speculate without knowing uh, more uh, with regard to uh, what, what their proposals actually look like. And then finally, they have various proposals to limit work authorization that are granted to people seeking asylum who are in deportation proceedings, uh, who have various kinds of pending challenges to their removal from the United States. Uh, the, this administration wants to say, well, you, you can certainly have your day in court, but you cannot work while you're waiting. Uh, Ron, I don't know if you briefly want to address uh, some of the ways that these uh, regulations might come out, how soon they might be in effect, and how they might be challenged. Yeah, uh, Bill, normally when regulations are issued, there's what's called notice and comment. So 30 days or 60 days, the public can comment. And if that were to happen, hopefully lots of the folks on the call would be commenting on these. However, we have been led to believe that the administration plans to try to issue these regulations without what is no the notice and comment that's normally required under the Administrative Procedure Act. If that happens, we will most certainly be challenging that by litigation. I don't want to go into detail here because we have, obviously we don't have an actual regulation to look at, uh, but we do think that, uh, that there's a real good possibility that in the month of July, they're going to issue these regulations as final regulations effective immediately without notice and comment, in which case uh, we will be in court challenging it. And again, we'll be uh, looking to uh, many of the companies who are listening to this to, uh, uh, to participate in that process. Um, so that's, uh, you know, other than that, it's, it's premature to talk about what, uh, what the actual regulations will look like and how we will challenge them. So I think before we do Q&A, maybe, Michelle, you could talk about some of the other hot issues out there that have been coming down, you know, literally by the day and by the week, and that we are expecting to come down soon. Uh, and, and then we'll uh, take some Q&A. Great. Thanks, Ron. So, um, yeah, to get started, as probably most of you saw in the news last week, the Supreme Court um, issued its decision on the DACA program. So the DACA program was um, for the dreamers, those who came over um, as young children and grew up in the United States, um, but, you know, through no fault of their own, were here without documentation. Um, the Supreme Court did uphold the DACA program, um, saying that um, the rationale behind the administration's reasoning to wind down the DACA program was actually arbitrary and capricious but it didn't completely close the door to having the administration eventually have different reasons to wind that down. So right now the DACA program is um, valid and active and working, um, but there is potential that down the road it gets challenged um, again, and I'm sure the administration is um, looking into other ways to do that, um, but there are some timing considerations with the election in November as well. There's also um, proposed changes to um, the F-1, the student visa. Um, the, there's been talk that they might consider eliminating STEM OPT um, or possibly even all OPT, which is the um, work program that comes after um, your, you graduate from your student visa. You usually, students can get one year of optional practical training OPT and potentially 
a full three years when you add the STEM OPT extension onto that. Um, that program is being reviewed and um, may be eliminated. It would have to go through those regulatory measures that we talked about, that Ron mentioned, um, but that's something that we're, they're considering. They also might change or tighten the controls around the curricular practical training program, which is the program that allows students to both go to school and um, potentially work at the same time, either through externships or internships or, or um, other uh, work-study type programs. Um, and then finally, um, something that has been long on everybody's minds um, and long on this administration's agenda is to eliminate the work authorization for H-4s. Those are dependents of H-1Bs who have been in the country um, and, and are undergoing the green card process. They can get work authorization based on certain milestones of the H-1B green card process. Um, so there are proposals to eliminate that as well. And we do expect to see some action on these items in the, in the next um, month or two. Okay, and um, so now I know I'm sure everybody's eager with questions um, that some of them have been getting answered in the chat box, but I'll uh, turn it over to um, question and answers. Sure, so before we go to question and answers, I just want to hit the key takeaways that I think everybody should oh, sorry about that. come away with. Not a problem. Uh, so the first key takeaway you see is that the current non-immigrant workforce is not immediately impacted. Anyone who is physically in the United States can continue to work. Anyone who's physically in the United States can extend their status. Anyone who's in the United States uh, can change their employer if a new employer files a petition for them. And anyone who's in the United States can continue their process towards the green card. They can have a firm labor certification filed for themselves. They can have an immigrant visa filed for themselves. And if their priority date is current, they can apply for adjustment of status. None of those processes are affected by this new travel ban. Uh, there were some questions that came in uh, that didn't get answered in the chat. I just want to uh, sort of stress that. Uh, does it affect the ability of an employer to hire an H-1B and transfer that uh, H-1B worker to their uh, H-1B? No, it doesn't. The, the, it doesn't affect it. Those kinds of transfers are still possible. And indeed, um, current H-1B workers are, are, are not affected. Now, uh, anyone who's coming in from outside, anyone who was outside the United States on June 22nd uh, is going to require some sort of creative solution in order to get them back. Uh, if they are in the H, L, uh, or those uh, J subcategories. I think it's really important to stress this next point. There are a lot of questions around if a person who is in the United States with a valid visa stamp, can they travel? If a person is in the United States, but they don't have a valid visa stamp, can they travel? So it is really, really critical. Travel remains risky, both because of coronavirus restrictions and because of the slow return to normal processing that we are seeing at consulates. Right now, uh, we have individuals who were uh, scheduled for July visa appointments. Those visa appointments were given to them back in April. And guess what? They're all being canceled. And those people are having to go back and ask for a new visa appointment. They're being granted visas in August. We don't know whether those visa appointments are going to get granted or not. I think we also do not, we do not yet have confirmation that uh, the U.S. immigration authorities, like Customs and Border Protection, that they agree with our interpretation of the travel ban. We would say that someone who is in the United States today and who 
needs to get an H-1B visa or an L-1 visa in order to come back is not subject to the travel ban under the plain language of it. But we don't know for sure that the Department of State and uh, the Customs and Border Protection agree with that interpretation. So until we have those confirmations, it's very, very risky to contemplate traveling outside the United States. And then the final takeaway is that there are more regulatory changes coming that might impact people currently in F1 uh, OPT status. They might affect people in H status, but it's too early to speculate about exactly how those are going to take effect. And it's too early to speculate about whether they will take effect immediately or whether those effective dates will be delayed. So uh, unfortunately, that does mean that there are still a lot of areas of questions, but uh, at least for people who are in the United States, there are some definite answers. So uh, let me just uh, uh, highlight a couple of the questions that I've seen come in uh, because there seems to be a lot of uh, questions around it. So one of the sort of tragic situations we see is divided families. So if you have an individual who they're an H-1B, they're an L-1, they were in the United States on, uh, on June 22nd. However, their spouse, perhaps their child, was overseas. They were visiting family or they needed to go back for whatever reason. Uh, anyone want to comment on, on that situation? Will that spouse be able to get an H-4 visa or an L-2 visa in order to return to the United States to be rejoined with their H-1 or H-4 uh, L-1 spouse? Sure, I can take that one. Um, my Based on the plain reading, I would say no. It, it, the, the executive order does say um, dependents that are um, applying with them or following to join. And, and that is a term of art, but it usually means when somebody is in the United States and then the person, um, the family member abroad is coming back to be with them, following them to join them in the United States. So unfortunately, while it's a very difficult and sad situation, um, if they didn't have a valid visa, I don't um, think they'd be able to come and join their family. Uh, thanks very much. Now, what about if you have, uh, we, we didn't really mention this small exception because it's, it's, it's pretty situational. It doesn't come up very much. What if you want, what if you're outside the United States today, you want to apply for an H-1B or, a, or an L-1 visa, and you happen to be married to an American citizen? Um, can you get the H-1B uh, or L-1 visa? Do you have any other options? Uh, if nobody else wants to take it, I'll quickly answer that. In fact, there is an exemption written into the ban. It says the ban does not apply to people who are the spouse or child of a U.S. citizen. Uh, sorry, spouse or, uh, yes, spouse or child of a U.S. citizen. So in that situation, if you happen to be married to a U.S. citizen, but you were going to use an H-1B visa because it's easier to come in with, uh, that would still be allowed. Uh, so it's a, a pretty small uh, uh, exception, but it is an exception nonetheless. Uh, there was a question about uh, having H-1Bs for a nonprofit organization. Are they exempt from the ban? Um, and what about if you have uh, someone who's currently working for you on, on STEM OPT, will they be able to switch to H-1B for a, a nonprofit organization? And I think it's important to understand this ban applies to all H-1Bs, including those for universities, including those for nonprofit organizations. So fortunately, the follow-up question of can the person change status from F1 OPT to H1, that is the fact that the person is able 
uh, is in the United States right now and is able to change their status without traveling internationally. But uh, one of the things this administration has done is not made any exception for universities, uh, uh, for healthcare organizations uh, in the way that the statute does uh, as they've implemented this ban. Uh, one question uh, that I think is fair to ask, does this ban uh, apply to OPT? Uh, Elise, you want to answer that? Sure. So the very good news is that um, we originally expected that it may apply to OPT, but it does not. Um, so um, there were original murmurings that it may apply to F1s and OPT. There is nothing in this ban um, that applies to OPT now. So OPT and STEM OPT can continue at this time. Excellent. Uh, all right. And uh, Michelle, if you could just clarify, there was a little bit of confusion about the effective date of the proclamation as compared to the date you had to be in the U.S. Because I understand that a proclamation is effective today, the 24th, as of midnight tonight. But uh, what was that June 22nd date you were talking about? Sure, and that's a, a great question um, because to be honest, in the initial reading of it, it's it's a little bit confusing. Um, the June 22nd is the date that the proclamation was issued. And um, that is the date that uh, um, it does say that the the for the immigrant visa extension that is effective immediately upon the effective date of this executive order. Um, but in terms of the suspension of entry, um, that became effective on June 24th. So that's um, why both those dates matter there. Okay, great. Uh, now. Uh there are uh, one question that came up was how does this ban affect uh, diversity lottery winners? If uh, I assume they mean if they're outside the United States, um, are diversity lottery winners still covered by the immigrant visa ban? The short the short answer is yes, they are. Absolutely okay. And uh, several people have asked some questions around. Uh, broad exemptions. Uh, I, I'm, I'm actually in Ocean City, Maryland this week. I've noticed a lot of help wanted signs. There are several questions from J1 program sponsors asking about uh, can we get broad national interest exemptions because it's so hard to find U.S. workers who are interested in these seasonal jobs. Um, my reaction is this administration is not looking to make any broad exemptions to this ban. Uh, uh, this administration believes that employers uh, are simply not looking hard enough and that, in fact, they should be offering better wages and working conditions uh, to Americans to entice them uh, to come and work in these seasonal jobs. So, no, I do not expect that uh, whether it's summer work travel or, or whether it's any industry you want to list, that there will be any kind of broad exemption just because of the economic impact uh, of, uh, uh, of those industries. All right. Um, so, Bill, okay. I see a couple of questions um, asking about folks who are currently in the United States, but whose status is expiring in the next six months. Um, so I just want to clarify that in response to those questions that for those who are in, inside the United States right now, we would recommend filing the extension through USCIS um, at this point in time. 
There is an open question, I think, based upon the language of the executive order. If they are in the United States at this time and they currently have a valid visa, but that valid at the time of the proclamation and that visa is only expiring afterwards, it is an open issue whether or not they can then later leave and re-enter the United States and apply for a visa at a later time. Until we have additional clarification on that issue, um, I think I would urge caution. Bill, do you agree? I would agree. I think I think you're exactly correct that, that it looks like the language of the proclamation did not invalidate any existing visa, but that we want to make very sure that Customs and Border Protection agrees with that before people try to plan any travel in. All right, and so to wrap up, I, I, I will summarize. There were several questions around the proposed H-1B and labor certification changes that we mentioned. Those are just proposals that were mentioned. There is not a lot more detail available at them. Uh, it is not clear when or if they will become effective. Uh, and so we will, of course, schedule further webinars and send out client alerts as soon as we have any more information about those upcoming possible changes that this administration is looking to make. So with all that, I want to thank my partners for the time in preparing. I want to thank all of you for joining us. And that ends our webinar.